Um, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. And of course, if you're able to, I want to invite you to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Beginning in verse 5 of Matthew chapter, or verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, you are glorious. Father God, you are majestic. Father, you are all-powerful. Father, you are great. Father, we come before you as, as mean and humble creatures of yours. Father, we just pray that we would get a correct sense of ourselves Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to have deeper adoration, to have deeper love for you, deeper love for your word, for your truth, and for your, for your church, and for our brothers and sisters in the faith. Dear God, let it be the mission of all of us to, be, to continue to walk in the Spirit, to be conformed into the image of your Son each and every day. Father God, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, and we know that that comes primarily through your word. And so as we begin that task tonight of opening up your word in the assembly, in the gathering of your saints, Father God, we pray that you would bless our service. We pray that you would bless our meeting. Father God, personally as the preacher, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit, Father God, if what I am doing is, a, is going to be genuine, if it's going to be true, if it's going to be spiritual, it must be spirit-filled. And Father, I, I am in need at that point. My natural speaking ability, my intellect, that's not enough to do what it is that I need to do here. And so I ask for your guidance. I ask for your assistance. I pray that the Spirit would open up the ears and eyes and the hearts of my listeners. Father, that your word, that your truth would be impressed upon their hearts. May, as my brother Al prayed earlier, may these words, may this service, may this time change our lives, transform us and renew us. In the name of your beloved Son, I ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Verse 7. Matthew 5, Jesus Christ, our Lord, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We come now to the fifth beatitude, and as we have been doing throughout this sermon series, I 
I wish, to for, I wish firstly to show you how these words of Jesus here fit into the larger uh, context of what it is that Jesus is actually saying. So if this is the fifth beatitude, where does it fit in the order? Where does it fit in the flow? Where does it fit with everything else that we are reading? I have repeatedly said that the Beatitudes are like a, a golden chain of blessedness. That They are a progressive list of characteristics and attributes that are displayed in a person's life when God's grace comes upon them, when God begins to regenerate and, and renew them, breathe spiritual life into them, raise them from the dead. That's what conversion is. It's raising a dead sinner from the dead. And so what we find is all of these different characteristics are going to be displayed in a person's life. Sometimes we look, we look at a list like this and we go, you know, I think I can do that one. That one kind of works for me. I'm not so sure about this one right here. I mean, pure in heart. I know my own heart too well, and so maybe I can ignore that and worry about the others later. Maybe I... You know, I can be merciful for a little while, and of course that's what we're looking at tonight, but the reality is you can't do that. Can't, uh, that's called cherry picking. You can't, can't do that. You have to take it all as it is. I mean, if God is speaking to me in verse 7, he's speaking to me in verse 8. And if I'm going to be consistent, I have to take it all. And so that being said, if we're going to take it all, we need to take it correctly. We need to take it appropriately. And what are the three rules of biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. Your English teachers taught you that, and of course it's good to remember that when you're studying your Bible. There are certain fads in Christianity which aren't really too good at context, but it's what we need to practice. And, and my hope really is that when I am preaching or I'm teaching a Bible study, that not only am I expositing or expounding to you what this passage means, but I hope that when you, when you hear my preaching or, or you hear my teaching, whatever it is, I hope that also in that you are kind of picking up on how it is that, that I need to study the Bible. How, how do we approach a text? How do we come to a text? What questions do we ask? And so, we, we need to understand these things in context, of course. And so in our last sermon, we looked at verse 6, in which Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, if you listen to that sermon, uh, it's on our online and everything, if you weren't here, I made the comment that verse 6 is really, is I think the most necessary, the most important verse of the Beatitudes. I think it's like the key that sort of unlocks the rest of the, the passage for us. It's like the hinge upon which it all turns. It's like it's this great shift in direction. It is where, I mean, if we're talking about God's grace and God's grace coming upon a person and changing them, raising someone from the dead unto life, verse 6 is really where there's a great shift in direction. It is where the change in someone's life is most clearly seen. The first three Beatitudes, the, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meekness, it's almost like we can consider those to be passive attributes because it's almost like these are qualities which are just, it's like they're forced upon a man. It's not like 
it's really something you do. It's sort of something that has happened to you. Uh, others would identify those characteristics as, as needs because really uh, the first table of the Beatitudes almost expose to us and show us how we are really spiritually dependent creatures. Those three characteristics take on a very, very somber tone, a very weighty tone because they show us how because of our sin, really we're spiritually lacking. And, uh, you know, I realized something as I was th- thinking about this sermon series and everything like that. It's, it's like the last few sermons, especially when we're in the first table of the Beatitudes, it's almost like kind of hard, it's, it's tough, it's sort of, like I said, somber is the best way to, to think about it. It sort of just leaves you there speechless when you contemplate these things and and I think there's a time when it's, when it's really appropriate. It's like Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for laughing, there's a time for weeping. It's not like laughing's bad, but laughing must also benefit your life, be a part of your life in its proper place. It's like the Puritans had a saying, we must dig low for we build high. I mean, it, why are you quibbling about the crown molding on your cabinets your foundation's not even level or there's a crack in it or something like that. It's like we need to get this stuff down first. We need to dig low. We need to dig deep into our souls. We need to empty ourselves of all that is in there that we may be filled up with Christ and we can start building on top of that. And so verse 6, which we looked at in our last sermon, as I said, it's like it's this great turning point. Like now the direction is shifting because it's, it's almost like we're no longer looking at a man's dependence or his spiritual needs because what those spiritual needs have done to this man is now they have produced a unique characteristic altogether, one that is completely foreign to the natural man, and that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And you could say that this too is a need that we have for truly we, we need righteousness we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we can be holy and blameless in God's sight we sang that song here uh, this this morning here at Lakeview uh, dressed in his righteousness alone faultless stand before the throne it's it's also very true it's what we need we need to be covered in in the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ and I hope that if you listen to the last sermon I made that very clear But here's the amazing thing. Jesus says that those who have this hunger and this thirst, this great desire, this great craving for righteousness, he says that they shall be satisfied. And that includes not only that that being dressed in his righteousness alone, the, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which basically just means by our faith we are clothed with the goodness and perfection of Jesus, But we also observe that it's not merely God's intention to forgive us of our sins. We we understand that it is God's intention that his elect, that his people are made holy. Not only in the life to come, but also in our lives right now. Saying through Moses, and Peter repeats this in his epistle, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
You see, that that is a, a quintessential aspect of the Christian life. And so while the children of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, are not perfect, not completely sinless in this life, they nevertheless are continually being sanctified by the Spirit of God. And this great work which we call regeneration and conversion, it's, it's going to show itself. It's going to manifest itself in a person's life. You see, we're not just hearers of the Word. We're doers as well. That's what James tells us. And it will manifest itself firstly and chiefly in one's profession of faith. And then afterwards, in one's deeds and conduct. I often think of those great words of Jesus in John chapter 7 when he, when he says, Whoever thir- thirsts, come to me, I will give you living water. And then obviously he reveals that that coming and drinking of his water is a metaphor for believing. And he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Because that's what salvation is. Remember, we're talking about a dead man being raised unto life. I mean, the analogy that Jesus makes is being born again. New life. That is a radical change. There is a, an element, a strong element, I should add, where the life that the Christian leaves now is distinctly different than the life he lived before. And so, what has happened to you when God saved you, when he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, when he pleased himself by shedding his grace upon you, when you were united with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, your baptism symbolizing that coming up out of the waters to walk in newness of life, it's going to show itself, is what I'm saying. And so that is exactly what we see happening beginning here in verse 7. For after this man has been broken down with this great, stark, deep, heavy awareness of his sin, having been made poor in spirit, mourning, meek, empty with himself, he finds himself hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And what does God do? God satisfies that hunger and thirst, and now the world gets to see the fruits of it. If the first three Beatitudes are are passive, these next three we can call active, because these are positive characteristics which are produced within us, and they show themselves in our lives. These are going to particularly mark how the Christian lives his life, and especially in regards to how he treats other people. You see, this is what is so powerful about Christianity, that it is a living faith. It is true, it is genuine, it is spiritual religion. Now, I always make a good emphasis on theology and doctrine, and as every good preacher ought to, but we must never forget that our theology, that our doctrine is actively demonstrated and carried out in practical ways in our everyday lives, because that is how powerful Christianity is. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. And so then very soon, every single aspect of our lives, it becomes transcendent, it becomes spiritual, it becomes divine, it becomes powerful. Brother John and I were talking over the weekend about how Calvinism relates to shingling a roof. 
how the glory of God and the transcendency of God shows itself. And when, when, when you snap the line to make sure that everything is running square and level, why? Because you want it to look nice, because you don't want the roof to leak, obviously. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? It's like everything we do in our lives, down to the very labor of our hands, the, the sweat that pours forth from our brow, all of it is done for God. That's, that, that, that's what our forefathers understood. That's how the, the Puritans lived their lives. There was a saying in this country at, at one time of, of the Protestant work ethic. When you look at New England and the early settlers and the early, early Puritans who came here, there was a distinct difference between the New England colonies and the southern colonies in Virginia. Because in New England, you had this distinctly Protestant Reformed, not just doctrine, not just systematic theology on the shelf, but a completely different worldview where everything, everything was seen in relation to the glory of God. Is that not that, that's how we need to be. That's how we need to look at it. We need to shingle our roofs for the glory of God. We need to sell our appliances for the glory of God. We need to supervise for the glory of God. We need to teach our students for the glory of God. We need to raise our kids for the glory of God. We need to love each other for the glory of God. Everything becomes transcendent. Because as Lloyd-Jones said so perfectly, our Christianity is meant to control us. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. He says, you who are once slaves of sin, you become slaves of righteousness because you've been committed over to the standard of teaching to which you've been taught. That is what doctrine is supposed to do. That is what theology is supposed to do. It's supposed to enslave us, get us at our very hearts, show itself in how we live. Am I treating my fellow church members as a, like a good theologian should? That's basically what I'm trying to get us to think about. And so as we continue through this sermon and we contemplate the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we ought to expect in our lives, let us pray that, that the Holy Spirit, that he would give us guidance, that he would give us wisdom, that he would give us understanding in these great and important things. And so the specific thing that Jesus says here in verse 7 is blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, if you've picked up on my pattern of, of studying uh, these Beatitudes, you'll know that the very first thing I want to do is define our terms. What are, what are we actually talking about here? So to ask a rather basic and simple question, what does merciful mean? What, what, is it, what is he talking about? What is meant here by mercifulness? And so... The word translated here as merciful is the Greek, eleemon, which is an adjective that refers to a, a person who shows compassion, shows forgiveness, leniency, especially towards someone who has offended, to them and, and, and offended them, and that's, that's very important. Because you see, there is this peculiar thing about mercifulness that it especially relates to showing love or favor upon those who don't deserve it. You see, it's one thing to pay back good for good, but to pay back good for evil this, this is another thing altogether. 
And what I find not only very interesting in itself, but also crucial to our understanding of these things, is that if you do a study of that word, you will find that it only appears twice in the New Testament. Obviously here, but then also in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, where we read of Jesus that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It's referring to the incarnation, when the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And it goes on to say, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now I'm going to revisit that point more fully, but keep in mind for now that the only other time this word is used in the New Testament is to refer to Jesus in the incarnation. Now, if you search for this word, how it's used in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which was basically the Bible of the early church, you will find that in almost every place that this word merciful is used, it is describing God himself. And so we read like this incredible passage in Exodus chapter 34. says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, when we talk about mercifulness, the one who most perfectly possesses that quality is very God himself. It is Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I would submit to you that the most clear demonstration of the mercifulness of God is when he became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So that the reason Jesus, the reason we celebrate Christmas, the reason he came here unto us, a child is born, a son is given, the reason for all that is so that being made like his brothers in every respect, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, why do I stress this? Well, it needs to be our starting place in understanding this thing. Do you realize how very God-centered the Beatitudes are or how the Bible is as a whole? It's like in all of these things, we find our clearest and surest understanding when we look at them in relation to God, when we look upwards, when we look at them in respect for God himself, we must begin our thinking from the top down, meaning we need to start with God and work down to ourselves. The problem with the false ideologies of this world is that they make man their starting place, beginning from the bottom up. But when we look from the top down, when we see things from the Word of God's perspective, we see how precious of a thing mercy is. Mercy, in its most supreme expression, is when God himself becomes a servant for a sinner like me. 
Now, as mentioned before, mercifulness is the first of the active traits in the Beatitudes. You see, mercifulness is not some strange, vain, arbitrary, philosophical concept that we intellectually assent to. Mercifulness, it's something that we as Christians live. It's it's who we are. We are merciful. It characterizes who we are as people, how we live our lives, how we interact with one another. So just looking at what we've gone over already is still not enough to uncover the true meaning of our Savior's words. Because he here says, blessed are the merciful. So we need to ask the question of what mercifulness is insofar as it relates to our everyday lives. In other words, what are some practical steps that we can start taking in order to demonstrate mercifulness to those around us? Now, the very first step is very interesting because it's almost like it's not even a step at all. It's like... It's one of those mysteries in Scripture. It's like, it's easier just to believe this type of thing than it is to really understand it all. Because the very first step is to rely upon the grace of God. But yet, I am so dependent spiritually that it's like I need God's grace to even rely on God's grace. It's like like a chicken and the egg type thing. By the way, if you look a little bit deeper, the chicken came first, and same thing with God's grace. We love because he first loved us. And so by God's grace, we learn to lean upon God's grace. The Lord himself teaches and instructs each one of his children to lean upon him as their heavenly father. But at any rate, it is very crucial that we realize this because, you see, the call of the Christian life is a call that far exceeds that of any natural man. The things that Jesus commands us to do are things that go beyond the power of our flesh. And and thus, we need supernatural power. We need His grace. You see, once again, there is a reason that the Beatitudes are ordered the way that they are. Because before we can even work on trying to be merciful... We need to have undergone or understood the great life changes that are described in verses 3 through 6, ultimately culminating when God begins to satisfy that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because the only reason that we can demonstrate mercifulness in our lives is by God's own mercy working within us. That is something that we need to keep in mind and greatly consider as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there's a reason why the Beatitudes are at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's like everything else needs to be understood with this paradigm and these parameters. This is like our basic 101 type stuff right here. Then you can start worrying about the rest of it. That's why I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most used and abused texts in the whole Bible. Because people don't interpret it in its context. And you can come up with some crazy interpretations uh, if you don't understand these things properly. And so we need to understand that when it comes to any of these practical applications that Jesus is going to give us, we don't do them in our own strength. We don't do them in our own power. But it is by His 
power that we do these things. It is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I'd also say in relation to that last point that as we apply mercifulness and graciousness in our lives, we can do so only because we have been shown the greatest example of mercy and grace the world has ever known. And we can model our own mercifulness after that which has been shown to us when God condescended himself and took the form of his creation to save sinners like you and me. Because there is never any man, I am sure, more undeserving of mercy than the man standing behind this pulpit. And yet, to the praise of his own glory and grace, the Lord God has redeemed me, calling me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he's done that for many people in this room tonight. And for that we say, hallelujah. And I also see with what great sacrifice he undertook to do so. For the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, who was eternally in the bosom of the Father, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, humiliating himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you see, such condescension, Such humility was never known and never has been known since. And yet, that is what my beloved Savior did for me. In His mercy, He he made Himself a servant on our part. And and I think about that, and, and by God's grace, it just blows me away, and it ought to blow you away, beloved. For the same thing applies to every true Christian, for you once were lost, but now you're found. You were more than lost. You were once a a hater of God. You cared not for His law. You cared not for His Word. Truly, when you were enslaved to your flesh and in bondage to your sin, there were few creatures on earth more repulsive than you. And yet, what does the Lord Jesus do? He places Himself beneath us. Okay, he is the servant who washes the feet of those who he's serving. He places himself beneath us. He who knew no sin, being made sin on the cross, suffering under the wrath of his beloved Father. And for what? So that each and every single one of those sins for which he died would be forgiven. We mentioned earlier about Jesus being the high priest. In the passage we quoted, it says, He became merciful and faithful in the service of God, making propitiation for the sins of the people. He does all this so that all those who believe in Him, who are made partakers of this work by their faith, all who believe might find everlasting peace and forgiveness that cannot be taken away because Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall separate us from the love of God? And that's a rhetorical question. There is no answer. There is nothing that can separate you from God's love that can bring a charge against you. Why? Because you know the judge and he loves you. That's why. We read, having been justified by faith, we have peace. With God, we read that our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, 
offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Not one that needs to be represented every single week in the idolatrous work of the Roman Catholic Mass. Not one that was so insufficient that you need to sort of pick up the baton and finish the race for him. Not at all. Your works do not add to your salvation. Jesus Christ will not share his glory with another. He saved you so that he would have the glory, not you. So don't trust in your works. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your decisions. Don't trust in anything save Christ and him crucified. Save God's grace. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And nothing can be added or taken away from that work. Now, first of all, glory, hallelujah, and amen, brothers and sisters. I mean, what does that do to you? Don't that just make you want to sing praises unto the Lord our God? Isn't that just amazing? It's like that is spiritual food. That is spiritual Nourishment. I'm tired of these people who want to present Jesus like he's this weak beggar, like he is in need of me. I'm tired of seeing Jesus presented and portrayed as less than who he is on your TV show. Give me the Jesus of the book of Hebrews. Give me the Jesus who dies on the cross and accomplishes exactly what that sacrifice was intended for. That is what we need. So we need flowing through our veins 24-7. Let us rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior and High Priest who made a perfect atonement for our sins and He continues to make intercession on our behalf towards the Father to this very day. And so this great work of Christ is coming down out of heaven to do His Father's will, going to the cross, dying for the sins of His people. This is the kind of mercy that you and I need to have. And so this great work of the Christ on the cross, we believe in it, we rejoice in it, our sins are forgiven, but God's work is not done, that, done yet. You see, the gospel is not less than the forgiveness of sins. It's not anything less than that. But it, it, it is that, but it's also much more than that. It's like, how then shall we live if these things are true? And if I'm going to call myself a Christian, and if I'm going to wear this cross around my neck, am I bearing my own cross? Have I taken up my own cross? Have I died to myself, putting my needs behind me, putting other people before me? The fact of the matter is that even in the church, Now, this is going to shock you. But even in the church, amongst my brothers and sisters in Christ, now I know that you're not going to believe me, but there are times when we disagree. There are times when there's conflict. There's times when there's tension in these different things because it's just the natural byproduct of our still having to deal with our abiding sin. But you see, when we look at Jesus In John chapter 6, Jesus says something like the one looking on the sun will be saved, will will not perish, will have eternal life. It's like there's a constant need for us to be looking towards our Savior. 
One man, I, I heard this and, and I wrote it down somewhere in my brain so I'd never forget it. He said, you're going to struggle a lot in ministry. It's going to be hard. People are going to backstab you. You thought this person was on your side and sure enough, they're not. You're betrayed and you feel lonely. So what do you do? You stop looking so much at the sheep and you keep looking to the shepherd. It's like that's what we need to continually do. We need to be always focused upon Christ and upon his work and upon his everlasting love for us. I often tell people, it's like, your heart was not made to find its contentment in lesser things. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's like God made your heart in such a way that it would find its supremest delight and satisfaction in him and him alone. Anything less than God is not going to satisfy you. So I need to be constantly, constantly going to my God, going to his word, being in prayer, taking good use of the means of grace. Because anything less than him is going to let me down. And so we need to always be looking at at Jesus. Because in him we can find for ourselves a, a perfect example, I think, of how we need to treat one another. Because though you sin against me, when I sinned against God, he showed me mercy. Now, will I make a mockery of this gift and refuse to be merciful to you? I pray not. I hope not. If I fail in that area, I, I need to repent. I need to ask for your forgiveness. I, I, think it was, I think it was Thomas Watson who said that. It's like, when your brother sins against you, he merely transgresses against man. But you, in refusing to forgive your brother, transgress against God, and therefore you have the bigger sin. And so we actually see a kind of example of this type of thing um, in the scriptures with the lives of David and Saul. Saul, in his increasing jealousy over David, has begun to set out to, to kill him. There's conflict between the two. David eventually flees for safety, and at one point it works itself out that uh, while there's still this conflict, this tension, this enmity, this, this, this evil between the two of them, David gets close enough to, to Saul that he is actually able to sneak up upon him and take his life. David gets close, and he's able to actually cut off a piece of Saul's robe. And after he does this, it says that he was immediately convicted about his actions. Why? He remembered that Saul was still technically the Lord's anointed. He was still technically king over Israel. And, and David did not want to disrespect someone of such noble status, even though that man was trying to kill him. He could have ended it all right there. He could have solved his problem. And, and probably in the world's eyes, that looks like the right thing to do. Not what David did. And so David backs away, but he's got the piece of the robe still in his hand. Eventually, David confronts Saul, shows him that piece of robe, basically telling him, look, it's like I could have killed you right there if I wanted to. And I I got the the proof of it. But it's like he chose not to. And in this, we see how the man David, driven by a love and an adoration for God, because remember, the reason that he didn't take Saul's life was because he saw Saul in relation to God. He said, no, this is the one whom the Lord has anointed. This is is who we chose to be king over Israel. 
If, if, I, if I take his life, though I'm preserving my own flesh, I'm disrespecting my God. And that, that's what we need to do. We need to value our God above our flesh. I remember uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Pharaoh's wife comes upon Joseph and tries to seduce him. And, and what does Joseph do? He, he says, how can I do this thing? And, and sin against my God, and he flees. Do you imagine a temptation like that? And yet driven by a love and adoration for God, he, he is able by grace to do the right thing. And so we need to understand that we, we always ought to put God above our personal interests. And, and that's what David was able to do in that story. He was able to show mercy in his life. Matthew chapter 18 after Jesus is discussing church discipline and, and what to do when your brother sins against you, Peter comes to him and asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As, as many as, as seven times? And Jesus answers, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven in the King James. It's interesting how that can be translated. Not relevant. And then Jesus told this parable in Matthew 18, saying, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who was wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant, the servant who was just forgiven the 10,000 talents by the master, that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And I remember Jesus was telling a parable and he finishes by saying, So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, the error that that servant made in Jesus' parable was that, though he'd been forgiven much, when a, you know, he was forgiven this, this great large sum, and yet a fellow servant owes him a much smaller amount. He does not 
extend the same forgiveness. Which, what does that do? Well, it makes a mockery of the forgiveness he was just shown. It's like, did that, that mean anything to you when I forgave you that, that 10,000 talents? When I could have thrown you in prison in, in a debtor's jail, and yet I saw your contrite heart, I saw your uh, repentant spirit, and I forgave you? And then someone else, same situation, only they sinned so much less against you than you did against me, and, and you're not going to forgive them? It's like, what is wrong with you? Does, does that mean anything to you? And so, beloved, that kind of thing, that cannot characterize my life. That cannot characterize our lives. Think about the greatest sin that has ever been done to you. Think about the most extreme transgressions anyone has ever afflicted upon you. And this may be a harsh word, but it's an important word and it's a true word. No one ever sinned against you as much as you sinned against God. I repeat that, you can write it down. No one ever sinned against you as much as you've sinned against God. To repeat that old saying, the person who sins against you sins to but a mere man or woman, a mere creature. You've sinned against holy God. And yet, though the list of your iniquities was longer than you can even account, God forgave you. If you're a Christian, God showed you mercy. You are that servant in Jesus' parable who owed the 10,000 talents to his master. And yet, when he asked for forgiveness, when he was broken, when he fell on his knees, master wiped away all his debt. And so when a fellow servant, all Christians are servants of the same master, owes you that mere hundred denarii has committed some minor transgression against you, if he is repentant, if he asks for Forgiveness, shame on you, should you refuse. Now, caveat needs to be made. Does this mean that we don't address the sin in people's lives? Well, no. Remember, this parable comes right after the section in Matthew 18 where Jesus is discussing church discipline, which is in the Bible, where Jesus commands us to go to our brothers and, and to tell them where it is that they have wronged you or others. But you see, what Jesus repeatedly says is that if they listen to you, meaning if they are repentant, if they ask for forgiveness, then, then you've won your brother. It's like, it's like you did it. That, that's what the intention was. And, and so you can put that behind you. You can put that situation in the past where it belongs. You see, the church discipline is only ever supposed to escalate if the person is, is unrepentant. That's the whole point of the discipline, is to renew that person, restore that person. Get them back on, on the right track, because we love them. And so there is a strong element of mercifulness, even when we are making known to someone the error of their ways. For what is more merciful? To show someone their sins that they might repent, or to ignore them and let them perish? I tell you, it is an evil and unmerciful thing not to address the sin in your brother's life. Because what you are doing at that point is you are saying that you don't care about his spiritual well-being and ultimately you don't care about his soul. That is not how Christians are called to be. We are called to be merciful, compassionate, gracious, long-suffering, just as our God is himself. Oftentimes it can be 
a very challenging thing to address the sin in a, in a loved one's life. It's, it's a drug addiction. It's alcoholism. It's, it's whatever it may be. And it's like we love that person. And we may, out of love for them, seek to just... It's like, I don't, I don't even want to think about it. I, I don't even want to think about what he's doing. I, I don't want that to even be in my mind. And we can seek to pass over these things to the point where what do we do? We become guilty. We become enablers. But you see, if we truly love these people and, if we, and desire to show them mercy, the most merciful thing we do is to firmly seek to reprove and correct them. Was it not mercy when the prophet Nathan made David's sin known to him, which led to David's many tears of repentance? Was not this the gracious working of God? Sometimes the most merciful thing that we can do for our brothers to show them the error of their ways. Now this mercifulness, I think, applies chiefly to our interactions with the brethren, our brothers and sisters in the faith, as they are to be our, our, of our primary care as Christians. Yet obviously this does not mean that you shouldn't have an attitude or a characteristic of mercifulness with everyone that you meet in your life. You see, it is a wonderful thing when we can demonstrate to a lost person that Christian spirit of charity, that Christian spirit of, of mercy, because only we can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and only we can do it in connection with the gospel. It's like even a natural man can forgive you, but there's no transcendent meaning to that. Remember we were talking about the shingle and the roof, how there's divinity in that? Well, there's divinity when we forgive when we show mercy. Why? Because we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's a connection with the gospel. And so you see with a simple act of kindness or love towards another person, forgiving someone when they've wronged you. Now, it's possible that they just might be completely indifferent and not care at all. It's, it's a possibility. Or, you know, by the grace of God, maybe, that simple act of, of mercy and charity by the grace of God, maybe it truly touches that person's heart. Should someone ask you, how is it? You know, why, why is it that you're so forgiving? You know, that, that's the thing about Christianity is, is the way that we live our lives should show it. We, uh, I remember when I was preaching through First Peter, talking about that text, and it's every apologist's favorite text, you know, uh, Honor the, uh, Christ as Lord in your heart and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. It's like that verse is not talking about two PhDs on a debate stage. What that verse is talking about is in the context of persecution and suffering. A Gentile comes to you and he says, why is it that, that like, you're enduring the suffering? Why is it that, you know, why is it, Job, that you've lost everything. Your children have died. Your crops are gone. You're sick. Your own wife is telling you to curse God and die. Why? Why? Are you still hopeful? The answer is the grace of God. That's how the Christian life is to be lived. That it just, it just says something to other people. And so we show this mercifulness. We show grace. We show love. We show forgiveness. And someone asks them, why are you so forgiving? Why are you like that? What do you do? Tell them why. It's because you 
were once forgiven so greatly by someone whom you know and love, and that forgiveness that he has shown you has taken over your life, it's taken over every aspect of your life, then you can use that as a bridge to engage in truly the most merciful act we are ever afforded an opportunity to in our lives. That is the, the blessed privilege of sharing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the Son of God died on the cross, was buried, and rose again, thus accomplishing and securing the forgiveness of sins for all those who draw near to God through Him by faith. And is there anything more precious than to be used by God as a means of dispensing His mercy? What happens? We're afraid. We're afraid to do it. We think that the gospel, we think that the Bible will turn people off, will drive them away. Well, that's a good point. It will. Uh, The scripture says that to those who are perishing, the word of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, same word, same message, two completely different effects, two different people. There's an old saying I, I like to repeat a lot. The same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. And so what do we do? We be faithful. We do what the Bible tells us to do. We minister the Word of God to all people and we pray that the Spirit would use it. You don't don't doctor up the gospel to try to appeal to, to natural people because the same message, which is the power of God to us who are being saved, this very same message, foolishness, some are perishing. Let's do some reverse logic. If it is not foolishness to those who are perishing, then it's not the power of God. You don't like that, you take it up with the Apostle Paul. My point in all this is to say that to withhold the gospel from someone because you're afraid of upsetting or offending them, that's the exact opposite of mercifulness. And we are supposed to be merciful, we are supposed to be loving. Remember how Jesus displayed mercy by condescending himself, by allowing himself to look foolish in this world so that he could be the light of the world. We must allow ourselves to take shrapnel and to suffer for this purpose. Paul writes, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I endure everything. Now you know the Apostle Paul had a hard life. You know what he went through. I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Brother Mike was up here this morning talking about Paul's attitude in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10. What does Paul say in Romans 9? He says, I I wish myself accursed. I wish myself cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren. That was how he lived his life. Enduring everything for the sake of those whom God would call to himself. He lived to proclaim that gospel message. He lived to be the light of the world. Now I ask you this question, are you willing to endure everything for the sake of God's elect that they may obtain salvation? The Apostle Paul was. You see, if we are merciful, then we will be. It was the famous famous atheist and magician, uh, Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn, very interesting man, but he said something that I think we can learn from. He said that he had no respect for Christians who did not proselytize. And the analogy he uses is he basically says, look, if you know that there's a bus coming towards me, 
You don't let me know. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're crazy. And so it's like if you believe that I'm under the wrath of God and if I'm going to go to hell for all eternity when I die, and like you don't, you don't even like make an attempt to like convince me, he's like, what's wrong with you? You see, some things are just so obvious, even a, a literal magician understands them. And so in some, we express mercifulness in our lives when we try to treat people the way that Jesus treated us. We are gentle. We are compassionate. We are forgiving. When someone wrongs us, we seek to do everything that we can to forgive and to make amends. We put other people's needs before ours. We express this chiefly and primarily to the family of God, and we also display this light to the whole world as well. Now, though it has been hinted to a lot throughout the sermon, I know we're running short on time, we must still examine the blessing that is attached here in verse 7. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so, in what ways do we, as Christians, the merciful, how do we receive mercy? As always, there's part of that blessing we receive in this life, as well as in the life to come. Now, the primary way we receive mercy has already been mentioned quite a bit, but it is also something which I'll never grow tired of discussing. And that is the mercy that we receive from our faithful high priest, Christ Jesus. John chapter 1 says that from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He came full of grace and truth. You see, Christians in this life, when God justifies them, receive total and complete final expiation of sin, which can never be overturned. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. No one can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The good shepherd will not lose one of his sheep. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was condemnation. Gone now. Christ took it away. I live and I stand in grace. I am forgiven. I am freed from my sin. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ Jesus and has seated us with him in the heavenly places. These wonderful blessings, this total forgiveness, this sweet peace, the purest expression of mercy, we receive it all right now. And it is by faith in Christ Jesus and faith alone in Christ alone Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Do you realize that? Do you rejoice in that? Do you place all of your hope in that? When, when you think about Death, does that just like take it away for you? Because God's mercy is a continual thing that runs throughout our lives that we are always to depend on. Since we sin continually, we need to repent continually. And God forgives us continually. That's why our Lord instructs us in prayer to ask our Heavenly Father to forgive us our trespasses. By the way, also as we forgive those who trespass against us, keeping in context with the sermon. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in chapter 2, John reminds us that if we sin, 
we always have our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What I find so beautiful about God's mercy is that just as it was his love that gave us the gift of faith, so too is it his love that preserves us in the faith. I just think that's so wonderful. I really do. That it's like God, you know, the good work that he started, he's going to bring it out to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Like he continues to shepherd us and preserve us and and build up our faith all throughout our lives. That's a precious thing. The Holy Spirit takes his residence within us, makes our bodies his temple so that he can actively work to aid us and guide us all the days of our lives. And so it's like we have received mercy, we are receiving mercy, and we will receive mercy. For just as with every other blessing, the ultimate and final fulfillment of the mercy we receive will come in the next life. You see, in this present state, the Lord allows us to go through many trials, many tribulations. Now, even these things, by the way, are part of his mercy. The devil tempts us to destroy us. God tries us in order to build us up. And so even though our present trials and tribulations are really an extension of God's mercy, actively working to increase our faith and to make it stronger, God's mercy will be so clearly seen one day when he removes from us all trials and tribulations whatsoever, when we spend eternity with him. And won't that be such a glad day, such a glorious day, such a wonderful day? That being said, um, go back to the first point of the sermon. Is that not the ultimate encouragement to be merciful? I mean, if I'm going to spend eternity with my beloved God and Savior, then nothing that happens in my life should ever so afflict me or make me so angry or so upset that I would become unmerciful. Why on earth should we ever feel like we can't or shouldn't forgive our brother when he's wronged us? When there's conflict in the church, when we disagree, whatever it is that he did, whatever it is that he said, it's it's like, is that going to matter in eternity? And if Jesus is truly going to judge all of our works, the Bible says that even those who are saved are still going to have to give an account for their deeds. And so, do I want to enter into eternity having lived a life that was marked with anger and bitterness? Or do I want to enter eternity having lived a life that was marked with merciful? You see, anger just captures us and and consumes us. And that's not how we want to live. A heart stained in anger grows weak and grows bitter. You become your own prisoner or you watch yourself sit there wrapped up in a trap of your very own chain of sorrow. John Prine. And so, as we close with tonight's message, let us all pray that God would continue to show us how much mercy we really have been given. And so let us desire to show the same kind of mercifulness in all of our lives as well. Jesus says if we do so, we are blessed. And that blessing comes from God. And let us all pray that we as Christians would be able to live more and more like Christ. Including at the business meeting. Let us pray. Father God, Father, we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Father, I just pray that you would continue to give us encouragement. I pray that you would continue to mold us and to shepherd us. Father God, be with our church, be with our souls in all that we do.
We pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.